and then this is the Mediterranean area, obviously. And Paul, when, we're, when he's writing this letter, of course, is up in Rome um, and uh, in prison. And our theme, of course, is this theme of joy, which is an interesting word, really, in the context of Paul facing hardship, facing prison, facing a trial and possible execution, and the church going through quite a lot of difficult times. And I've been reflecting on this word joy, as obviously as I prepared for the sermon, and we've used the word happiness quite a lot here this morning already, and that's one of the words that I was sort of reflecting on, happiness, joy. There's another word, contentment, that I've also been mulling over. So I just want you to start, if we can start by just turning to your neighbor and just say to them, what do you think the difference is between joy and happiness? What's the difference between joy and happiness? Just a couple of minutes while you do that. me doing that or am I alright? You can say again. Is that alright? That better? You hear me at the back? Sorry about that. So my name's Tim Cross. Um, I'm a lay minister here and I'm also a soldier like um, Andrea, which means, of course, being a soldier is why she found it so easy looking after these twins and, uh, and, and dealing with all the hassle. But I'm going to refer back to being a soldier as we look at some of these characters. I don't know what you thought about happiness, but happiness, for me anyway, evokes ideas of lovely holidays, unwrapping Christmas gifts, baptism gifts, being with someone we love, uh, laughing at surprise, at an unexpected gift. All of us want to be happy, and there's nothing wrong with that, of course. But the danger, I think, is that we chase the sort of elusive ideal We spend our money to secure the latest car, the latest fashion piece of technology, which we're assured, of course, will fulfill our wildest dreams. But if happiness depends on circumstances or the latest gadgets, what happens when the circumstances change? The toys rust, loved ones die, health deteriorates, money disappears, and the party is over. I think there's something about joy standing in contrast to happiness as being deeper and stronger. Joy is the quiet, confident assurance that God loves us and that he's at work in our lives, no matter what happens. Whilst happiness depends on things happening, results going our way, joy, I think, is deeper than that. And ultimately, according to the Bible, it depends on a relationship with Jesus Christ, which is what this series is all about. Now, there are going to be four main players in our passage today. Graham's going to come and read to us in a moment. Two of those players have always been there. Paul, the writer of the letter, and the church that he writes to in Philippi in Macedonia, up in the top left-hand corner there. That church had been established there by Paul, and he seems to enjoy a sort of special relationship with them. They were clearly a source of great encouragement to him, and he writes to them, as we'll hear, with great love and affection telling them that they have bought him much joy. 
a word used 16 times in the four chapters of the letter, which finishes with that great acclamation that they and we should rejoice in the Lord always. In a life dedicated to serving Jesus, Paul had to face up to poverty, pain, beatings, imprisonment, the threat of execution. It was from a prison, as I said earlier, that Paul is writing this letter. And yet he's learnt to be content. It's another word that I referred to earlier and I'm going to return to in about five weeks when we look at another part of this passage. But he'd clearly found real joy as he focused all his attention and energy on knowing Jesus Christ and on obeying him, on putting the interests of Jesus above his own. The other two players are new, Timothy and Epaphroditus, or Epap, as I will call him from now on, because I don't know how to pronounce his name properly. The two people we're concentrating on today, seeing how they served Jesus through Paul and the church. And as always, the aim is to open up the scriptures and offer a challenge. Are we serving Christ's interests or our own? Are we seeking happiness or seeking joy? So let's start by opening up our Bibles. Graham's going to come and read to us. It's on page 1179, which you might like to open and keep on your lap as I'm uh, speaking later. It's also going to be on the screen, the reading itself, as Graham reads to us. So Graham, over to you. Yes, Tim said uh, it's on page 1179, and um, it's actually from Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus Christ to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Graham. Let's just uh, pray for a second, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this great letter from Paul to your church. And as we read it, Lord, we look for issues for our own church here. And we thank you for these two guys 
who Paul is writing about today. I pray that we would learn something about them today. But most of all, Lord, we would learn something about how better we can serve you, your interests, and take that with us as we go back out into the world at the end of this service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So at first sight, this passage looks rather like a travel itinerary, with Paul laying out his diary plans. But as we look deeper into it, we see that we're actually reading about two Christ-like examples of service. First is Timothy, who, perhaps not surprisingly, is one of my uh, favorite New Testament characters. He gets a lot of good press, and he's clearly one of Paul's closest companions. He's referred elsewhere as his dear and faithful child in the Lord, his brother, and his fellow worker. And they've been together since Paul's visit to Lystra, that other place I pointed out on the map. He met Timothy there for the first time on his great missionary journey, his second journey around the region. And they were together until Paul's death in Rome uh, about 17 years later. And they spent time together in Macedonia, in Thessalonica, in Corinth, in Ephesus, and of course in Rome as well. A much younger man than Paul, Timothy seems to have been by nature somewhat reserved and even timid. But yet Paul sees in him something very special. In the same way that God seems to pick the weakest and the lowest to take on major roles throughout the scriptures, Paul commissions him to strengthen the Corinthian and Thessalonian churches in their faith because for all his shyness, he could clearly be trusted above many, if not all, others to show pastoral care and gentle tact as he traveled around to deal with awkward situations. He acts as a messenger for Paul on a number of occasions and always seems to be available to Paul, entirely at his disposal, being prepared to undertake dangerous journeys and difficult errands for him. In my language, in military language, he was effectively Paul's military assistant or his ADC, his aide-de-camp. I had an MA for a while and an ADC for a couple of years when I commanded my division. They were both indispensable to me to such a degree that Richard, my ADC, subsequently married my daughter. (laughs) Paul was to write two very personal letters to Timothy, letters that were undoubtedly a source of encouragement to them, as they are to all of us today. And if you haven't read them for a while, they're well worth a read. And it all bears fruit, because Timothy goes on to become the first bishop at Ephesus, where his protests at their licentious behavior in honor of Diana lead to his martyrdom in AD 97. 30 years after Paul's death, all of which affirms his courage and his faithfulness. It's clear that Timothy has a Christ-like mind, a gospel mind, and that his attention is always focused on serving Christ's interests. Paul says that he has no one else like him. If you open up the passage and look at the words that Paul is using, very powerful uh, words, no one else like Timothy around him that unlike everyone else looking after their personal interests rather than those of Jesus, he, Timothy, takes a genuine interest in the affairs of the church in Philippi. Paul reminds them that they know that he has proved himself, for as a son with a father, he has served alongside Paul in the work of the gospel, helping to establish their own church, amongst other things. It is this concern for the gospel and for them that motivates Timothy, drives his concern for God's people and for their well-being. Now, that concern may have been sharpened by some news that Epap brought along with the money sent to help support Paul 
in prison. Perhaps the Philippians were facing deepening opposition and suffering for the gospel. Whatever it was, Paul would clearly have liked to send Timothy back to them to encourage them and to pick up on what was going on there and then bring all the news back to Paul, who also says that he's confident that he himself will subsequently be able to visit them. But apparently he can't send Timothy now. Now, we don't know why specifically, but maybe he needs Timothy to be around preparing for the trial that Paul is facing, a trial that might lead to Paul's execution. Having him around obviously strengthens and encourages Paul. And the bottom line is, he's just not prepared to let him go. But he will send him, he says, when the result of the trial is known and the verdict is announced and he has a clear view of what comes next. So if he can't send Timothy, whom can he send? Paul has made it clear in verse 16 of chapter 1 that not everybody preaching Christ in Rome is inspired by the highest of motives. Seeking their own interests, preaching out of selfish ambition, maybe seeking prosperity and popularity rather than the interests of Jesus. They're warm to their own interests, but cold to the work of Christ. The bottom line is that he can't trust them to face up and, to, and overcome, face up to and overcome the threats and dangers of the proposed journey. So he turns to our second character, Epap. Now, we don't know much about him. He's only mentioned in this letter, but it's probable that he was a non-Jewish Gentile convert and an elder, a leader of the church in Philippi. He had been sent to Rome by them, entrusted with clearly a significant gift of money to be delivered to Paul to support him during his imprisonment and trial there. Like all prisons in those days, Paul has to rely on family and friends to bring him food, fresh clothing, and the money needed to survive, as he says in verse 25, to enable him to take care of his needs. And it is to him that Paul turns, and he's going to be sent back immediately for, I think, three reasons. He was their messenger in the first place, so they must have trusted him. He, Epap, longs to get back to them. And also, he's been distressed because he knew that they'd heard that he'd been ill, and he wants to get back so that they could see that all was well. So the letter includes a personal discharge, making it clear that Epap hasn't just cut and run from the trial and all that's going on in Rome and what might follow, and a warm commendation, revealing the depth of Paul's appreciation of him during the rigours of his imprisonment. Paul writes glowingly about him. He calls him a brother, a fellow worker, and a fellow soldier. The latter is a rare accolade, suggesting that they had fought side by side, facing conflict and danger, as indeed they had, because we know that Epap had almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to bring this money to Paul. We don't know how long he'd been with Paul, and we don't know if he fell severely ill during the journey to Rome, and yet had pressed on because he knew the importance of the gift that he was carrying, or if he'd become ill once he'd arrived in Rome. It would clearly have been a body blow to Paul if he died, pouring, says Paul, sorrow upon sorrow upon him. And the Philippians may not have realized how ill Epap had been. But thank God he hadn't died, and Paul was glad that he was now able to send him back, carrying this letter and asking, if not ordering, 
that they should welcome him back in the Lord with great joy, that word again, and that they should indeed honour him. Unlike the world, which honours those who are intelligent, beautiful, rich, powerful, time after time, Scripture honours the exact opposite. Those who give their lives for God and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not the majority, who only look after their own concerns, interests and well-being, but the few, like Timothy and Epap, who even though they are fragile and often frail, place the will and interests of Jesus above all else. While most around him turn inwards to look at their own interests, Paul, facing prison, uh, facing trial in prison, facing a verdict and possible execution, Paul still cares primarily about others and is determined to encourage and challenge them. His previous reference to the attitude and sacrifice of Jesus in chapter 2 must have given the church in Philippi pause for thought, as it should, of course, us too. And by laying out the example of these two young men, he rams home the point. He wants the Philippians to be gospel partners of the same mind, of the same love. And so he presents them, exhibit A, exhibit B, of what this looks like. Timothy has unselfishly served the gospel and the cause of Jesus, putting aside his own interests and risking everything, rank and reputation, status and standing, showing himself genuinely concerned for the church at Philippi and putting their interests and the interests of Jesus before his own. Epap had displayed devotion to his initial commission from them in the service of Paul, almost at the expense of his life, in order to advance the work of Jesus. They are slaves to the gospel, servants to others, having the mind of Jesus and a determination to serve him and unselfishly care for others. So what does it mean for all of us? The work of Christ clearly isn't easy. Balancing out the needs of family and friends in the various phases of our lives whilst following the call of Jesus is never going to be easy. But the scriptures are pretty clear on which side of the line we should always strive to stand. As Christians, we're called to be fellow workers, indeed fellow soldiers. But it's all too easy to let our busy schedules and our concerns crowd out our service to Jesus. Pressing on whilst being desperately ill may seem a bit fanatical, but where we cross the line from dedicated service to being a fanatic is not that clear, to me at least. But Paul doesn't put any qualification down as to when we should risk our health or our lives or when we should take a break and regroup. And the truth is, in sport, in business, in many other areas of life, loads of people out there and maybe even some of us in here, risk everything, money, family, health, as we pour our treasure, our time, our talents into an attempt to secure earthly success, to secure happiness. What stops us doing the same for Jesus as we search for his joy? A missionary called John G. Patton was having a conversation with an aging Christian before heading off to the South Sea Islands back in the late 1800s. You'll be eaten by cannibals, he was told. Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, 
You are advanced in years now, and your prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make little difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And on that great day, my resurrection body would arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our great and risen Redeemer. That's the mindset of Christ. An example of someone serving Christ's interests rather than their own in the great adventure of living out the gospel. I once read that driving to church on a Sunday can sometimes feel a bit like Groundhog Day, the movie where Bill Murray's character is forced to live pathetically exactly the same day over and over again. There's nothing wrong with the day that we Christians are reliving, it's just the same. Mostly harmless routine of errands and pleasant exchanges in the Christian cul-de-sac. Our distracted gaze into the distance is occasionally interrupted by a nice hello, a small chore, or a really happy worship song. But then our minds slip back into the muted monotony of a perfectly fine Christian day. And we feel, maybe, vaguely discontent. Following Christ is supposed to be a bold adventure of power and beauty and singular importance. But the reality is that sometimes it appears and feels very different. And in very deep ways, it can be disappointing. We can all feel dressed up with nowhere to go, left wading in the gentle waves on the beach as the ship of adventure with Christ heads off to sea without us. Given the call of Scripture to be bold and get engaged in a glorious struggle, why do so many of us tend to settle for so little? When he calls us to be the light of the world, he isn't referring to a nice nightlight that will comfort the kids and keep us from stubbing our way on the way to the bathroom. Rather, wielding a Star Wars lightsaber against the great evils of the world, driving out deep swathes of darkness. But all too often when we ask ourselves, how far should we go to the South Seas or beyond? The brutally honest answer is, as far as I'm safe, as far as I'm in control, as far as the risks feel manageable, as far as my sphere of competence will take me. And all too often, we can retreat. We decide to settle for some more modest ambition. And consequently, in quiet, secret moments, we sense it doesn't take us very far at all. Jesus beckons us to follow him to a place of weakness, to the vulnerability of a child, so that we might know how strong our Father is and how much he loves us. But truth be told, all too often we would rather be an adult, be in a place where we could still pull things together if God doesn't show up, where we risk no ultimate humiliation, where we don't have to take the shallow breaths of desperation with a pounding heart. And as a result, our experience of our Heavenly Father is simply impoverished. We just don't get to be with him 
on the adventure that he calls us to if all we want to be is safe and warm. We serve a God whose power is made perfect in our weakness, not in our strength. We think preserve the body. He thinks preserve the soul. We dream of a pay rise. He dreams of raising the dead. We avoid pain and seek peace. He uses pain in order to bring true peace. We resolve to live before we die. He tells us to die in order that we might truly live. We love what rusts away. He loves what endures. He calls us to make the transition from being amongst those who have been rescued from the world to those through whom God is literally rescuing the world. Like Paul, Timothy and Epap as citizens of heaven already, through Christ's resurrection, we are called to strive side by side in the adventure of living out the Gospels, of putting Christ's interests above our own. And in doing so, we are promised joy, deeper and stronger than just happiness, the quiet, confident assurance of God's love and work in our lives, no matter what happens to us. But that joy depends on being prepared to serve Jesus Christ, wherever that takes us, through both the good times and the hard times. So perhaps today is a good day to ask ourselves a pretty simple question. Is it joy that we're after or simply happiness? And whose interests are we therefore seeking to serve? Our own or Christ's? Amen. Thank you, Tim. Well, I want to suggest that we just have a little bit of time just to process what we've heard. Tim's left us with a challenge. One of them is there on the screen. Whose interests are we serving? And that contrast between going for joy, that's permanent, that can endure forever, or happiness that's circumstantial. So I think it would be great just to have a minute or two, just to silently just reflect on that and discern what that looks like for you. What would it look like for you to move from something that's safe and warm to something that's an adventure? God will speak to you if you invite him. So we're going to take two minutes now just to silently, perhaps with our eyes closed, just to listen to whatever God wants to say to us about that now.
don't know what you felt God was saying to you. It'll be different things for different people. But what I do know is whatever he said is really important. And it's really important that we respond to that. It's really important that we follow his call. And he calls us to live radically, to put his interests above our own. And he promises us joy. And he promises us an adventure. So I want to pray for us all now that God would finish what he's begun. Father, I thank you for every person in this room, wherever they might be with you, whatever their circumstances may be, whatever their challenges, whatever their opportunities. Lord, would you lead them and equip them and inspire them and encourage them and strengthen them to follow your call, to go for that adventure, to seek deep, lasting joy, and to walk with you obediently, courageously, joyfully in everything that you are calling them to. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I think it's worth saying as well that, yeah, sure. Jonathan Vera, who's someone I've known for some time, and really to back up what Tom was saying about Jonathan Vera, I've, um, in fact, I've been doing his garden uh, for some years as a gardener, and that then passed over to my sister, and my sister is someone who I've been (laughs) witnessing to for a long time, and uh, Jonathan and Sue, his wife, um, have just done a fantastic job with my sister Julie in witnessing through love and just devotion of, her, of their time to her. Um, so much that uh, my sister Julie now um, goes and sings in his choir at St. Saviour's and she's amongst all these Christian people, all these people that just love her and do the work that I struggled to do because I was the brother and that was 10 years of me talking to her and just feeling I didn't get anywhere. So my message, linking in with what Tim was saying and what you've just said about comfort zones, this, this is me outside of my comfort zone, making a fool of myself, talking. And I would say, go out there and make a fool of yourself in your front line, wherever that is. And this is something Keith and Sandra have taught me. Be bold, step out amongst the people you're with each day and get them to come and see Jonathan Vera because he is about the easiest link that you'll come across in life to bring people that are not with Christ. He is so, so touchable um, from 10-year-olds up to 90-year-olds. So that's your opportunity and that's my challenge to each one of you. Um, It's no good sitting here and saying we're going to do it if we don't step out and do it. We want the church to be full. We want it to be full, not the people that turn up every Sunday and do it out of a sense of duty, but people who really love Christ. And I look at myself and say that I am somewhere between the two. I don't turn up each Sunday, and sometimes I feel it's a sense of duty 
rather than a passion. And I'm fighting with that to make it a passion. So there we are. That's what I've got to say. Thank you. Okay, well, that's a wonderful thing just to think about, to be encouraged. And I just back that up completely. Jonathan is a natural evangelist, and uh, this is a golden opportunity. Well, we're going to celebrate now with a final song. I'm just reminding myself what it is. The Splendor of the King. What a great note to finish on. Just to praise our Creator God, but our Creator God who longs to be intimately involved in our lives and who can use us to share God's light to share how great is our God. So let's stand and sing together.